This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Retail investing continues to be a topic of headline news. Whether through an app or an in-person meeting, many investors access the U.S. capital markets through broker-dealers. FINRA is the regulator responsible for overseeing broker-dealers in the United States. Its mission is to protect investors and safeguard market integrity in a manner that facilitates vibrant capital markets. Sometimes, safeguarding market integrity means bringing meaningful enforcement actions to correct wrongdoing and deter future misconduct, or to root out bad actors who pose threats to investors and the markets. To that end, FINRA's Enforcement Department is committed to identify misconduct, stop fraud, and prevent losses, and obtain restitution for harmed investors. It's a big job, and no one knows the ropes better than our very special guest, Deputy Head of Enforcement, Chris Kelly, who is going to give us a view from the front lines of investor protection, today on Insecurities. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. Uh, I'm excited for today's episode. You know, we went a long time without an episode focusing on FINRA, and this is going to be our second in just a few months. Back in December, of course, we were fortunate to have FINRA's Head of Enforcement, Jessica Hopper, on the show to talk about some of FINRA's enforcement priorities. That's episode 55. Listeners, hit pause, go back and listen if you want to. It was a good conversation. (laughs) Uh, But as I mentioned, we're really excited to have FINRA's Deputy Head of Enforcement, Chris Kelly, on the show today. He's going to give us an inside look at the investigation process at FINRA and talk a little bit about their enforcement philosophy and some unique aspects of FINRA as an SRO, or self-regulatory organization. Uh, Chris, you will be disappointed, I know, to learn that Reg BI is not on the agenda oh, today. Even shucks. though, I mean, I was trying to get, you know, over the like 40 episodes <laughs> barrier for our Reg BI uh, references. But uh, but this is going to be a good one, I know. Uh, Chris Kelly is no stranger to podcasts. He has been on a couple episodes of FINRA's own podcast, FINRA Unscripted including on June 23rd, 2020, in an episode called Protecting the Most Vulnerable, How FINRA Enforcement Prioritizes Senior Investors, and an episode on September 29, 2020, in an episode called Excessive Trading, When a Lot Becomes Too Much, which I think that's a pretty pretty good title. Uh, but anyways, he, he's, he's a pro, uh, so it's going to be a good chat for, for what it's worth. I think FINRA Unscripted is an awesome podcast. Would encourage our listeners Same. to subscribe, head over, listen. You can learn an awful lot. Don't hit pause right now. Do it as soon as this one's over. Uh, Their host, Caitlin Karenin, is awesome. The whole team is great. Uh, So anyway, that's enough from me. Chris Ekimoff, why don't you lead us off with a little background on Chris Kelly, and then we'll get the party started. Yeah, I wish all of us luck in the Chris confusion that may or may not happen throughout the recording of this podcast. <laughs> but the important Chris, Chris Kelly, currently serves as Senior Vice President and Deputy Head of Enforcement at FINRA. In this role, he oversees the work of FINRA's enforcement attorneys throughout the country, as well as Enforcement's litigation group. 
Chris joined FINRA in 2014 and previously served as chief counsel in FINRA's North Region. Prior to joining FINRA, Chris served as the deputy chief of the criminal division at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of New Jersey. Before becoming deputy chief, Chris served as the chief of the Economic Crimes Unit at the U.S. Attorney's Office, where he oversaw the office's prosecution of complex economic crimes, including crimes involving insider trading, securities fraud, corporate fraud, embezzlement, and other economic crimes. I could not think of a more fitting guest to join us on Insecurities. Chris Kelly, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, Chris Kelly, uh, we want to we want to go ahead and start the conversation. Uh, I, what we kind of want to do, as I mentioned up top, is is get a little bit of the inside baseball about how uh, the Fender Enforcement staff thinks about enforcement matters. But first, just for our listeners who may not do a, a lot of broker dealer work, who may not appear in front of Fenra, we want to level set and just talk a little bit about Fenra's enforcement mandate or the processes, a little bit about what an investigation looks like. So a couple softballs to, to get you started here. Um, why don't you tell us, uh, you know, first, who does FINRA regulate and what rules does FINRA enforce? So generally speaking, FINRA regulates broker-dealers and persons registered associated with those broker-dealers. Uh, one small addition to that, we also regulate certain funding portals that may not technically be registered as broker-dealers. In terms of uh, what rules do we enforce? So we enforce federal securities laws and regulations, FINRA rules, and the rules of the MSRB, the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board. Um, one lesser known fact, um, FINRA also provides examination and enforcement services on behalf of other self-regulatory organizations, uh, generally speaking, the, the exchanges like N the NYSE, NASDAQ, CBOE, IEX, for example. Uh, and when we're bringing a matter on behalf of those other self-regulatory organizations, we're obviously enforcing their own rule sets. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Um, the, the last one is uh, is something that I think isn't immediately apparent, but I know I've dealt with uh, from time to time over my career where uh, some of those exchanges almost outsource you know, their enforcement function to FINRA. I think um, NYSE is maybe the exception to the rule, but most of the other ones seem to hand it off to to you guys. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they, they outsource the work. Ultimately, they're the ones who are making the decisions about, you know, what's formal and what's not formal and what the sanction should be. But we do conduct the examination, investigation, and make the, the recommendation on in terms of what uh, what we think should happen. Chris, we, we read the headlines and we see kind of the results of enforcement at FINRA, but how does it get started? Where do we start the process? How are How is FINRA alerted to some of these issues or where to look at that start these investigations or enforcement actions? Yeah, so just to take a step back, the, the vast majority of the matters that end up at FINRA enforcement uh, come from other FINRA departments. And generally speaking, I'm talking about the market regulation department and the member supervision department. Um, and if you parse it a little bit further, market regulation generally conducts investigations that are initiated based on alerts. So they have all sorts of sophisticated surveillance patterns that run against the market every day, looking for misconduct in the data. So, for example, looking for things like layering and spoofing. Uh, when they get an alert, they may initiate uh, an investigation in response to that alert. Aside from those market regulation specific matters, you can sort of uh, parse the world of FINRA examinations into two types. There are what we call cycle exams and cause exams. Cycle exams are exams that are conducted on a regular cadence. So you may be a firm who gets examined every two years. So you know every other year FINRA is going to come in on a regular cadence and investigate you, uh, conduct an examination. Cause exams, by contrast, are initiated in response to a specific event. 
So, for example, a customer complains to FINRA that there's some misconduct being committed by her broker. Uh, FINRA will open up a cause exam to look into those allegations. If you were to ask me, okay, you know, for the matters on enforcement dockets today, where do most of those come from? I would say most uh, come from cause examinations. All right. So whether the algorithms identified Kurt's inappropriate spoofing conduct or somebody uh, told you directly, Chris, maybe through through getting in touch with FINRA, walk us through the steps of how Kurt's going to get in trouble for his spoofing activity. What does FINRA do? How does the investigation ramp not, up? And then what are kind I'm of the- I'm not dis- loving this hypothetical, Chris. I'm not <laughs> loving this hypothetical. Well, just to be clear, one way or the other, we're getting Kurt. That's right. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm all for it. I'm, I'm ready. Right. Whatever you need, we'll, we'll get it to you. Thanks. So, uh, so let, yeah, let's take a, a fairly common scenario, and that's uh, a typical cause investigation starts when a firm terminates a broker for misconduct. Um, and when they do so, they have to file what's called a Form U5, um, notifying FINRA of the termination and describing the misconduct. Every Form U5 is reviewed by a member of FINRA's member supervision department. Um, and they'll first do what sort of like an initial triage. Uh, in other words, is this something that FINRA cares about? Is this something we can do something about? If it's just an employer-employee dispute or a matter of poor performance, that's nothing that we're going to look at. But if there's a potential violation, for example, of a FINRA rule, um, then there may be uh, more for us to look at. Um, usually that examiner will reach out to the firm to try to find out more about the reasons around that termination. That That's usually required because some Form U5 explanations are more fulsome than others. Um so we may have to reach back out, get more information, find out what really happened. If it looks like there's been a violation, we'll open up a cause investigation uh, and dig into that further. So getting back to Kurt getting canned now instead of uh, being a, a spoofing uh, artist here, uh, where do we start to you know put pen to paper when it comes to a decision about disciplinary actions? Does that come early in the process, much later? You know, and where does that kind of burden fall on making that decision? Yeah. So, so in other words, when does, when does, uh, enforcement show up in a, in a matter? That's right. Uh, the answer is it can happen in a, in a couple of different ways. Um, one way we, we show up in a matter is the examination team reaches out to enforcement and says, Hey, we'd like to consult with an enforcement attorney on this matter. Often that's because there are a number of different potential violations. Um, and they want to get some advice from an attorney on, you know, what are the elements of these violations? What sorts of evidence would we need to prove these violations? Things like that. Uh, the other way we get involved is the examination is is has reached a later stage. It's it's complete or nearly complete, um, and they uh, make a referral to enforcement to to take it from there. So we'll take the investigation. We'll finish up any additional questions that need to be finished up, and then we will um, evaluate the matter to make a determination as to whether disciplinary action is is warranted. I mean, tell us a little bit about that that process once it's referred over to the enforcement staff. What is what is your investigation or or evidence gathering look like, so that you you sort of have an informed view about whether or not discipline is required? Yeah. So I so just to take a step back, I think it's important to understand that the overwhelming majority of matters never come to enforcement. Well, more than ninety percent of matters that are that are reviewed by member supervision or market regulation. Uh, they never come to enforcement. They're never referred to enforcement. Um, if there is a desire, uh, if a matter progresses to the point where they think it's worthy of formal action, the examination team, whether that's market regulation or member supervision, uh, will bring it to what we call, uh, here's an inside baseball part of the conversation, a, a collaborative consultation uh, or a CC. Basically, what that means is the exam team uh, presents the matter 
to a group of enforcement managers uh, and examination managers who collectively evaluate the matter and try to make a decision as to whether or not formal action is is the best next step. Uh, one thing that's important to, to, to realize, that's sort of a, of a gate uh, before a matter comes over to enforcement, but it's not a one-way gate where matters pass through, through the, to the land of formal action never to return again. Um, once we accept a matter for formal action, it doesn't mean that uh, it's a fait accompli that you're going to get a, an AWC or a complaint. Um, and that's because of exactly what we just talked about. There, there usually are additional questions, additional information that we need in a case. Um, and so it's not at all unusual for us to get a matter in enforcement. It comes over to our docket. We ask some additional information and we ultimately decide, you know what, this isn't best resolved by a disciplinary action. We can issue an informal action usually a cautionary letter, or no further action at all. And that, that actually happens hundreds of times every year. Okay, Chris. So if I, if I hear you right, it sounds like the vast majority of matters before member supervision uh, of, of the exams that are being conducted by the exam staff do not ultimately result in some kind of enforcement action. Maybe there's a referral, maybe there isn't, but most of the time we're not looking at disciplinary action. Can you tell us why that might be? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So more than 90% of the matters that are looked at by our examination programs never are, are brought to enforcement. Uh, and that's that's very simply because that's our mandate is not to, to generate enforcement actions. Our mandate is to try to help the industry uh, you know, comply with the rules and regulations and ultimately protect investors in the market. And so you know, when our examiners are out, they're looking to first help firms comply with the rules and regulations, provide advice, provide guidance, provide best practices, which is a lot of what, what they do. And secondly, even when they do find a, a violation, you know, not every violation it rises to the level of it's something that needs to be addressed by enforcement action. Uh, if a violation is it doesn't result in customer harm or a major risk to the markets, um, and the firm is willing to remediate that quickly, that's often something that the exam staff can resolve right then and there with with the the firm or with the respondent without elevating it to enforcement. Enforcement is, I think, appropriately reserved for the most egregious types of misconduct. Okay, so I think that's you know a pretty good, pretty quick overview of of the process, some of the sources of investigations, and some of the potential outcomes. Uh, we're going to un unpack that a little bit more as we get into the conversation. But you know, first, I think it's it's interesting and important, perhaps, to know a little bit more about your background because I think it probably informs you know the work you you do as uh, as the deputy. Uh, mentioned up top that that you were in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of New Jersey for some period of time. But tell us a little bit how you would compare working on securities cases at the U.S. Attorney's Office with what you're now doing at Finner Enforcement. In some ways, the jobs are are very similar. At its core, um, you're trying to sift through a complicated fact pattern to determine what happened. Uh, so there's a lot of sort of old school detective work. Uh, one thing that's very different is um, the tools that I had access to as a member of the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, much different than the tools I've access to now. I, I'm no longer issuing subpoenas or uh, working with the FBI to conduct search warrants. Um, but the process and the goal is very much the same. I would say the biggest difference is is sort of timing. You know, at, at the U.S. Attorney's Office, when we were working on securities cases, we were in many respects like the last line of defense. By the time a matter had had made its way to us, generally speaking, the, the misconduct had already happened, the harm had occurred, the money was gone, uh, and we were there to sort of pick up the pieces and make sure that justice was done. 
FINRA, however, is sort of on the opposite lines, right? Opposite end of the spectrum. FINRA is very much the front lines of investor protection. So, uh, for example, there were cases that I worked on at the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, that if you dug through the file, uh, you would see that, oh, the case came to the U.S. Attorney's Office from a, an SEC referral. And if you dug a little bit further, you'd see, well, actually, the case started um, with a FINRA referral to the SEC. FINRA was the first one to uncover the misconduct. So that's one of the things I was really excited about when I came to FINRA was the ability to, to work more on the front lines. And so not just uh, to get a matter after all the harm had been done, but to be able to detect a matter while the harm was ongoing, stop the harm uh, before it got worse and immediately address it uh, and hopefully you know make customers whole. Um, so I think that sort of is one of the biggest differences is when you get involved in a matter. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm sure there are some uh, some very different, as you said, tools that are available. Uh, you know, obviously the, the the power of the subpoena is is great, um, but as an SRO, you have you have members, right? They've sort of submitted to to your authority as the regulator. So, uh, at least in my experience, it's uh, it's not good practice to ignore FINRA's requests. <laughs> that, I don't know if that's official legal advice, but it's probably a good best practice, right? I, you know, it's getting close <laughs> to it. But um, you know, some of that, some of these differences that we're we're sort of dancing around are just because FINRA is, as we've said, a self-regulatory uh, organization and SRO. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that impacts enforcement and and how you're thinking about bringing disciplinary actions. When I first came to FINRA, I, I didn't realize and appreciate how important it is that we are a self-regulatory organization and what that means in our day-to-day. -day. You know, let me give you an example. A lot of my former colleagues uh, at the U.S. Attorney's Office, when they left, they went to the other side and they started representing defendants in, in, in one respect or another. And almost every single one of them would tell you that within weeks of switching sides, uh, they had a different perspective. Um, it didn't mean that Anything they did as a prosecutor was was wrong. They're always trying to do the right thing. But oftentimes they saw that there was – things were more complicated, right? Um, fact patterns are nuanced. Life is not black and white. Uh, and it gave them a different perspective. That's the same thing being a self-regulator does for us. It, every day, you know, we may see a, a fact pattern that on paper looks pretty bad um, and looks straightforward. But then you talk to somebody – and we're talking to not only people in the industry on a regular basis, but, you know, many of our examiners, investigators, attorneys came from the industry. Uh, they're former brokers and traders. And so you see a fact pattern, you think it looks straightforward, but then you talk to a, a former person who was in that capacity, maybe on a trading desk, and they say, well, you know, yeah, it's not great, but, you know, keep in mind what they were dealing with. Keep in mind how this works in practice. It's, it's a lot more complicated than you think. You know, that perspective is invaluable because at the end of the day, our job is not to bring, you know, X amount of disciplinary actions. Our job is to address misconduct and affect behavior and ultimately protect investors in the markets. And so there's no doubt in my mind that having that fuller perspective helps us do that more effectively. Chris, you just mentioned the ability for the enforcement group and FINRA generally to maybe not just look at the market from a, a disciplinary perspective, but consider updating or, or considering new rulemakings as a way to help the market comply or, or move in a good direction. Do you have a recent example of, of something that's been developed along that rulemaking vein instead of just being a disciplinary or enforcement action? Yeah. One of the cases that really has stuck with me um, that I worked on at FINRA was a case involving a broker who 
um, managed to become the beneficiary of a customer's estate. Uh, in this case, the customer was elderly. She was a will- widow and uh, she was almost completely incapacitated at the time. Um, and this broker uh, uh, picked up the the customer from her assisted living facility and, and took her to an attorney to try to get the attorney to, to revise the will uh, to take out the charities that were going to receive the, the million dollars or more and leave that money to him. Uh, the first lawyer said no. Uh, the lawyer shopped around until he found a lawyer that would say yes. The re- will was revised and the money was left to the broker. Um, the good news is that ultimately there was litigation and, and the money was returned. Um, and that broker was barred by FINRA. Uh, but it's a situation that we saw more and more often, which is um, a broker becoming the, the trustee or the beneficiary of a customer's estate and the inherent conflicts of interest that that can, that can present. And so we took that, um, that information, those cases to our colleagues in FINRA's Office of General Counsel and suggested Yes, there are ways that we can get at this, but maybe this is an area where we want to rule directly on point that talks about under what circumstances this may occur and at minimum requires the broker to go to the broker dealer and get uh, notify them of the situation and get permission uh, for the situation. And so uh, that happened. Um, we put out a rule proposal and we now have a rule on point, FINRA Rule 3241, uh, that addresses this exact situation. FINRA is an organization that, like many, is going through some structural changes or, or updating the, the way that they do business or, or regulate. And one of the changes that most recently came about for FINRA that's pretty, uh, pretty high level is a move from a regional focus to a focus of firm types in terms of how FINRA administrates and, and reviews the conduct of its members. Talk to us a little bit about how that's impacted enforcement, uh, moving from a region to a firm type focus. Yeah, this was one of those changes that when it first happened, I don't think I appreciated how much it was going to impact us in enforcement. But you're right. A couple of years ago, the, the the member supervision program, the exam program, basically eliminated geography as a, as a organizing principle. So previously, if you had a, a firm in Florida, they were going to be examined by exam staff in Florida. And if they found a potential enforcement action, they were going to loop in enforcement attorneys in Florida. Uh, now, uh, the exam staff reorganized around firm type. And so you didn't have examiners just looking at Florida firms. You had examiners looking at, for example, mid-size independent contractor model retail firms. The advantage of that for the examiners and for the firms was that you had examiners who knew a lot more about the business uh, and didn't have to ramp up every time they came in to examine you. Um, but it did eliminate geography. So for us, it wasn't as easy as, okay, this case came from Florida. Let's give it to our enforcement attorneys in Florida. Now it became... All of the cases came into a central um, uh, intake uh, uh, process um, and were assigned out, are now assigned out not based on geography, but based on, okay, what attorney has capacity? What enforcement investigator has expertise in this? Uh, what paralegal can help on this? And so, you know, you may be a firm in, in, in California who's used to dealing with staff in California. Now you may be dealing with an enforcement attorney in New Orleans, an enforcement investigator in Boston, and a paralegal from Philadelphia, just because that's the staff that, that has the ability, the expertise to work on it. We have found that we are even more nimble and much more effective at balancing our docket and pushing matters expeditiously now that we can look across the country and assign matters regardless of geography. 
It sounds a little serendipitous, right, with timing. What was this, two or three years ago, pre-pandemic. So as we're all adjusting to less of a geographical focus in our work in professional services, it sounds like FINRA was ahead of the curve and, and well prepared to deal with that. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. The, the transformation happened just before the pandemic. And so we were in the process of, of changing, and then the pandemic just sped things up. <laughs> as for many of us, that's great. Yeah, I mean, I think it also hits on the point you were making earlier about the benefits of having people on the staff who have industry experience. You know, maybe they came over from a broker dealer or they've themselves like been on a trading desk at some point. Um, when you have uh, sort of teams of subject matter experts, I, I do think it's helpful. I'm sure that helps the enforcement process move along more quickly because uh, and and you know, you, you feel free to push back on this, but as somebody on the, a member of the defense bar, um, there's often an element of, of educating the staff, uh, maybe not at, at FINRA, but about like, here's, here's sort of what we do and here's how we do it. I don't think that's needed in quite the same way in many cases now, because you do have teams that are used to seeing the same type of firm or, over and over again. So I think that's, I think that's certainly helpful. Yeah. Cr credit to, to, to FINRA's examination program who saw that heard this complaint from firms like as you mentioned you know I, I'm, I'm tired of having to every time I get a new exam getting the exam team up to speed on our business and so they adjusted they made this massive transformation uh, so now that the exam teams will know more about your firm your firm type and your business and and frankly they've gone back after the fact and pulled firms and said how are we doing on this and the results have been really really positive the, the reaction as you said firms are doing much less getting people up to speed and much more just getting right to the what really needs to be examined. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that helps you with your mandate as well, because there, there's sort of no place to hide, right? When, when you're seeing the same examiners over and over again, they know your business model really well. They know the types of things that you're doing. Um, things aren't going to get lost. So it, it's sort of a, it's beneficial for all parties, I, I, I would think. Uh, all right, so let's shift gears a little bit, and we want to talk kind of about enforcement outcomes or the the enforcement philosophy of uh, the staff, or or at least um, your enforcement philosophy, Chris. We're gonna we're gonna pretend now that there has been a referral made to FINRA enforcement, and we feel like maybe we're heading towards some kind of. Uh, disciplinary action. I, I might refer to that as a suboptimal outcome. Do we want to get back into the hypothetical Kurt uh, Kurt scenario no, here? No, no, no. We'll rise above that. Uh, th this is one of Kurt's very well-meaning and, and uh, defendable clients. Oh, okay. Um, but, <laughs> all right. So uh, let's assume you know Finner comes knocking. Right uh, on my side of the table, one of the first things they they want to know is what is the range of potential outcomes? What kind of penalty am I looking at? Is are there going to be other sanctions included? Uh, uh, clients start asking that question very early in the process as they are trying to sort of come to terms with, with their position. Um, but something we, that you've mentioned, something we talked a little bit with about Jessica Hopper in December is that, that maybe the fact that Fender Enforcement is reaching out doesn't mean that firms need to start preparing for a worst case scenario. But I mean, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, well, for, first, I get it. No one likes to hear from enforcement. It's one of the hazards of the job. Uh, so no offense taken. Um, but I wouldn't assume that, you know, oh boy, here comes enforcement. Now a formal action is, is the inevitable result. As I mentioned, there's almost always additional investigation to be done in every matter. We almost never have 100% complete information. And so we have an open mind. And, and the proof of that is, as I mentioned, Hundreds of times a year, we dispose of matters on enforcement stocket informally or with no further action at all. 
Um, and so don't assume that just because you see enforcement, there's going to be enforcement action. It's not a fait accompli. So tell us a little bit. I mean, I, I want to talk about some of the factors that, that you or the staff consider when you're making a decision about whether you can sort of find an off-ramp or you need to, to go forward. So first, let's just say, what are some of the things that you might see in cases that that would suggest to you that maybe we can find an off-ramp here? Maybe we don't need to go forward with disciplinary action. So yeah, that's a great question. So in, in every case, we're going to look at certain aggravating and mitigating factors. So uh, did the misconduct uh, cause financial harm? Did it significantly impact market integrity? Uh, if it didn't cause financial harm or impact market integrity, was there? did it create a risk of those things? Um, did the respondent profit from the misconduct? Does the respondent have a history of similar misconduct? Or uh, sort of on the mitigation side, was this... Um, not a result of intentional misconduct, but, you know, a negligence? Or was this not a pattern of misconduct over time, but a one-time event? And importantly, uh, when, the, when the respondent uncovered the misconduct, did they act to fix the problem and, if possible, make any harm customers whole? Yeah. Okay. I mean, that, that makes sense. I, I guess in terms of thinking about whether, you know, a, a firm or, or an individual is going to get you know, a letter of caution or an actual discipline, uh, disciplinary action. Um, you know, what, what are factors that, that make you think disciplinary action is more appropriate? Is it, is it the customer harm? Is it the failure to self-report? I mean, are there particular things that the staff is going to see and go, whoo, I, it's going to be hard to find an off-ramp here. There are always, uh, a whole host of factors that go in both on the aggravating side and the mitigating side. And, you know, just to take a step back. So I think it'll give your, as you said, your um, very rule compliant clients comfort to know <laughs> that we are, we, that this isn't, this isn't a, a decision that's made in a vacuum, right? So if assuming that we, we, we get a matter in enforcement, first we have to determine that there is a violation of some, law or rule that we enforce. Um, second, we, it has to be a law or rule that we, um, that we, and a person that we have jurisdiction over. So obviously, and this is maybe almost too obvious to say, but we don't have jurisdiction over a lot of hedge funds and investment advisors and issuers. And so our, our, our jurisdiction is relatively narrow. So it has to be a, uh, a broker or broker dealer, uh, for the most part. Uh, then we consider, uh, as we talked about the aggravating and mitigating factors, if the, the enforcement attorney assigned to your matter determines Yes, I think this is a formal action. Yes, I think it's worth bringing formal action. Um, and so I think we should bring a, a, a formal action against this individual or this firm. They will write that up in a memo with all of the factors we talked about, all of the aggravating and mitigating factors. And that memo is reviewed by his or her director, his or her chief counsel, and ultimately has to get reviewed by um, what we call the Office of Disciplinary Affairs, a separate group that has to approve all of our formal action settlements or complaints. In fact, depending on the type of matter, there can be up to six or seven layers of review before we make that that determination, okay, formal action is what we're doing here. One of the things we talk about, Chris, often with folks like you that we have come on from these regulatory organizations is best practices, right? Especially for those who are faced with, uh, you know, maybe looking down the barrel of a FINRA enforcement interaction. And I'm not surprised, Kurt, that in our notes you had me ask this question instead of you. But uh, to Chris Kelly, any advice for those out there representing <laughs> brokers or broker dealers and dealing with FINRA enforcement? Yes. <laughs> so um, 
Yeah. So you know, let me get on the notepad. Hold on. Yeah, that's it. That's right. Um, Kurt is paying very close attention right now. So, you know, every year we investigate over a thousand matters and I've been at FINRA now for almost eight years. So I, I've gotten a chance to see over time things that more often than not work well versus what doesn't work well. And not in every case, every case is different, but in my opinion, uh, the most important thing that you can do if you're representing somebody who finds himself uh, in an enforcement investigation is to be proactive. And so if you get a request from uh, FINRA, try to learn as much as possible about what FINRA is asking early on. Uh, this can mean not just looking at you know a document request and then responding to the document request or looking at an information request and responding. Maybe it means calling up the examiner who sent that or the attorney that said that and said, you know, I, I don't understand exactly what this question is, but why don't you tell me what you're looking for and I can help you get it. So really understand what, what FINRA is looking for as much as you can. Um, then dig in. Um, and I know this is easier said than done if you're a big firm who's getting dozens of requests a week. Um, but one of the biggest mistakes I see is that when firms give a request from FINRA short shrift um, and later on we find out oh, that response was incomplete or worse, inaccurate, now you have a much bigger problem on your hands. And then sort of the last part of that is, you know, once you get a, a pretty good sense of what happened, I'm a big fan of, of being transparent and, and coming forward. Um, even if FINRA hasn't reached out to you in the last couple of, of weeks, I know that there's a tendency to let sleeping dogs lie. But listen, we're not just going to disappear without getting to the bottom of what happened. And I think for the most part, the firms and the brokers will save a lot of time and energy uh, if you come forward and say, this is what happened. You know, maybe we didn't ask the question in the right exact way. Um, and there's a way for you to write a response that doesn't give us the, 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 the information that you know we're looking for. Just give us the information you know we're looking for. Let's cut to the chase. Let's get to the issue and let's figure out what the right result is. Um, we're going to get there. In my opinion, we get there 99% of the time eventually. And just having that open dialogue, being transparent uh, on both sides, I think cuts out a lot of the back and forth, a lot of discovery requests a lot of paying Kurt for his attorney time. Oh, you were doing great right up until the end there. <laughs> you can edit that part yeah, out. we'll edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, for what it's worth, in my experience, the, the staff is, is in fact very willing to engage in that kind of dialogue. I think it's very helpful to be able to pick up the phone and, and talk to somebody, you know, on, on your side, Chris, and, and say, what, what is it that you're really, that you're really trying to understand here? Um, and, and they're always willing to have that conversation. Uh, so I appreciate the dialogue. Yeah, keep in mind, you know, there are something like 3,400 broker dealers and over 600,000 brokers. When we are asking for information from a broker dealer, we don't necessarily know how you keep that information, where you keep that information, what format is that information in. And so we may not ask the exact right question to get it, but rather than give us information that we're, you know, we're not looking for, you know, call us up and say like, yeah, we can give you all that stuff, but it seems like what you really want is this. And and, and so let's just get you that. Uh, that dialogue is really helpful, I think, for both sides. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it, we're, here we are cutting Kurt's uh, attorney time again. But, you know, sometimes <laughs> a request can just be it, to the client, obviously too broad based on what we think, you know, the staff is looking for. And so it's helpful to call up and just say, hey, here's what you asked for. We, we get it. We can give you that, but we think you actually want this, you know, subset or this slightly different thing instead. And usually the staff is just grateful that I, you know, we didn't make them weed through thousands of documents if what they needed was 20. Um, 
again, that's not that's not really great for my for my business model, but it is what it is. Well, here I I I I take away, but I also give it. So one of the things I think that is helpful is when attorneys when they get to that point of time where they have enough information to to have a sense of what went on, when they offer to come in and make a presentation. You now come in virtually these days, but you know, yeah. you know you've conducted an investigation, you have a sense of what, what went on, you make a presentation. That can that can literally save months and months and months of a back and forth between Finra and 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 you. I also think um, it's fair to ask it on the other side, right? A lot of times, I think it's it's fair to, to ask Finra to make a presentation. You know, I think sometimes we we're hesitant to sort of show our cards. Mm-hmm. I, I, that hesitancy, I think, is almost always misplaced. It almost always is better for us on our side to say, "Hey, this is what we think happened. Tell us if we're wrong," because we want to get it right. Yeah, I, I I know I always appreciate it when when the staff is willing to do that sort of you know reverse proffer mm-hmm. style presentation, so we can understand exactly what it is you're th- you're thinking about, what you're concerned about, or what you think happened based on the records that you've seen, or you know maybe what you heard from your your referral source. Um, so yeah, I, I do I appreciate the dialogue. Um, but let's assume we've we've had this great dialogue. The staff has gone through and they've weighed all the aggravating and mitigating factors and. You know, some kind of formal action is necessary. Tell us a little bit about how you or or how the staff thinks about setting sanctions. And let's put restitution aside for for right now because that's kind of a, a separate thing. But if we're thinking about monetary penalties or we're thinking about whether a, a bar or suspension is appropriate, what are some of the factors you're considering when you're when you're calibrating an appropriate sanction? Yeah, and and and. I can imagine if I put myself in, in, in your shoes or in the shoes of one of your respondents that you haven't heard from Finver in a while and all of a sudden you get a call up that says, hey, we want X or Y. And it feels like it came out of the blue. I, I, I really want to convey how thoughtful we are when it comes to determining what the appropriate sanction is. And so, for example, you know, we bring big cases, multi-million dollar sanctions against large firms. I, I mentioned also a lot of our cases are against individual brokers. A relatively small, quote unquote, small sanction for us would be suspend a broker for a couple of weeks. And that could feel, you know, it would be, I think, natural to say like, oh, that's like a routine sanction or a small sanction, as I mentioned. Well, you know, what we try to do is, and I say to, to my staff is, you know, think about what would happen if the Bar Association suspended your license for two weeks or for a month. Think about that would be a life altering event. Think about how that would change your life and, and how uh, significant and impactful that would be. Let's never lose sight of the fact that these are real people with jobs and families. And so even if what we would determine a quote unquote routine sanction is not routine when you're on the other side. So we give these things a lot of thought. And, and, and the other thing is, and I mentioned this before, these are not, these decisions are not made in a vacuum, right? So every decision, uh, every sanctions determination has to be justified by the staff attorney uh, they write it up in a memo uh, when they consider things like what do the sanction guidelines say, right? FINRA has sanction guidelines that provide general principles when determining what a sanction should be, but also specific guidance on certain types of violations and what the sanction should be for those violations. We also look at precedent. What are similar cases that have happened in the past? What have been the sanctions in those cases? Uh, and then we look at all the sort of aggravating and mitigating factors we talked about. Um, was this uh, an intentional act or was it a result of negligence? Does this broker have a history of misconduct or was this a uh, a one-time event? 
Um, did the broker, broker profit such that we should make sure that they disgorge those profits? Um, and what happened afterwards? Did the broker uh, admit to it um, and accept responsibility? Or on the other hand, did they try to conceal it uh, from FINRA and from other regulators? And so all of those factors are considered and more in every case. Um, and that decision is ultimately vetted, as I mentioned before, by multiple layers of, of supervision before we even reach out and make that call uh, to you. One of the other topics we get on insecurities a lot, and, and Kurt and I share this a, a bunch, is kind of messaging, right? Or, or these actions that take on a, a broader uh, discussion with the member base or the markets about conduct and the responses to that. Uh, so regulated firms, I think, are always looking for that kind of transparency and predictability. We talked a bit about, uh, you know, Kurt, when when FINRA comes knocking with some of your clients, they want to know what the potential range of outcomes are. So for Chris, you know, how do you communicate those outcomes to to the member firms and the market to help set expectations? You know, what avenues do you utilize to, to educate the market in that respect? Yeah, my, my perspective on this has, has changed. I, I didn't appreciate when I first came to FINRA how much attention that um, the industry pays to our settlement documents in particular. Um, and I've, I've been in multiple meetings with folks from the industry where someone from compliance will tell me, you know, I took that settlement document, we call them AWCs, Letters of Acceptance, Waiver and Consent. I took that AWC to the business side and showed them, hey, these are the facts. This is what we do. And this is what's going to happen based on these facts. So it is a tool that they use in, in talking to the business side. I appreciate that much more now than when I first started. And as a result, we as an organization have made a concerted effort to be much more uh, transparent and much more fulsome in our description of the misconduct in those settlement documents. And so you know, I would, I would say take a, take a, a, a violation and look at a, an AWC that we issued this year and compare it to a similar violation from 2016 or 2017. Uh, you'll see a wholesale difference in the amount of detail that's in the 2021, 2022 document. Uh, because we realize that's important, um, that most firms want to get it right. And if we can help them get it right by putting more detail in a disciplinary action, that's going to avoid future disciplinary actions. Uh, we'll do that every time. Yeah, I can say that um, you, you have been successful at, at that uh, in terms of providing more information, more detail in AWCs, uh, and it's appreciated. It really it helps the defense bar. It helps the clients. Um, sometimes for for me, my job is about setting expectations. You know, violations happen, and sometimes they're unintentional. Sometimes they're very technical. But if I can go back and look at some AWCs and, and then go to the client and say, here's what here's what kind of happens in these kinds of cases. It's it's very helpful. And if I can put a little bit of meat on that bone, that helps too. Whereas if I go back in time and look at some of the older AWCs, all I might see is there were X hundred violations and here's the total that, you know, the total sanction um, that, that Fender decided was appropriate. And it's like, I, well, I don't, I can't yeah. do an awful lot with that other than to tell you there have been cases like this before. Uh, so it's working. It's working, Chris, and it's, and it's appreciated. And I can imagine that FINRA's enforcement group doesn't only signal and interact with the market by throwing disciplinary uh, gauntlets down on, on members. How else does FINRA enforcement work to educate and shape kind of the, the member firm's culture, their compliance, or, or some of the other issues they face? Yeah, we get it. Enforcement action is not always the right regulatory response to a situation. Um, and oftentimes the right regulatory response is issuing additional guidance to the industry. And so it's not uncommon where we'll see a fact pattern and realize that it's either new or novel, or maybe there's not a, a rule that, that it fits uh, neatly within. 
And we will work with our other colleagues at, uh, at FINRA and Corporate Communications or the Office of General Counsel to issue guidance to the industry. So, you know, we'll take the first shot at drafting a notice to members on an issue or an investor alert to, to investors. Um, there's no value in hiding the ball. It's better for us if we can prevent that misconduct in the future by, by putting people on, on fair notice to that. I'll give you another example. Just this week, we meet on a regular basis, I mentioned, with um, representatives of, of the industry, so from the, from the, the broker dealers. Uh, we had a meeting this week uh, with a, a group of industry participants, and we said to them, hey, if, 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 I was, if, if I was to lose my job and I was to go or I was going to go work for a broker dealer, here are some of the things that I would look at within the first week based on either pending or recent enforcement actions. And so we saw this case that had this unique fact pattern, but I think this is something you want to keep an eye out for. Or you may not have seen this AWC we issued six months ago, but I think it's one you, you, you want to look out for because we're seeing this more and more often. We have those meetings on a regular basis with the industry where we tell them things we're seeing so they can address those proactively. Man, how can I get my hands on the, the deck from that presentation? <laughs> I mean, <it's>, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, you know, one other thing we can do, and again, to go to circle back to where we started, which makes what I do now a little bit different from when I was at the, the Department of Justice, you know, FINRA is, is, is relatively nimble in seeing a, a, an, a, an area of misconduct that's not addressed by our current rule set and, and promulgating additional rules. And so, I, that's happened a couple times since I've been at FINRA where we've seen some misconduct. It doesn't fit neatly into one of our existing rules. And so we go to our colleagues, uh, within the office of general counsel at, at FINRA and say, Hey, this would be great if we could, if we could try to propose a rule to address this misconduct. And we've done that and we've done that with, with great results. Yeah. I think the one thing you left out of that, Chris, is educating the market through the unscripted podcast from FINRA. Uh, one of our favorite things to listen to and follow along with. So always great to get that information out there. Yeah, in full disclosure, the most important thing I do is is to go on wildly popular securities law podcasts like Insecurities. Uh, wow, I was going to say which ones are those, but you've already named us. That's great. Yeah, uh, it's a market of one. Um, we're, we're killing that today. <laughs> Uh, well, well, Chris, we've really enjoyed talking with you today. Thanks for making some time. Uh, we, we always like to give our, our guests a chance, uh, particularly regulators uh, at the end. Just if there's any any message you want to convey um, or some parting thoughts before we close out the show. No, I, I well, just the one thing I think we've hit on a couple of times is I, I think the best thing that we can do as a regulator is to be transparent. And I think it's the most effective way uh, to represent uh, a broker, a broker dealer who finds themselves in, in FINRA's crosshair, so to speak, is to be transparent. We all want to get to what, what actually happened. We all want to get to the right result. And the quicker and more efficiently we can do that, the better. And that comes from having a, an open dialogue, I think. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Chris Kelly of FINRA. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. 
PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.